Tony Anderson Jones Tower Forest, and you're listening to Visual and Necessary, the NDIS podcast series brought to you by the Summer Foundation. Joining me today is the Minister for the NDIS, Minister Bill Shorten. I spoke with him before the election when he committed to rebuild trust in the scheme. Almost three months later, and he is now in charge. But what has he learned since taking over? And what is he going to do to address the issues facing NBS participants today? Let's find out. Hey, Bill. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to be back on your show. Thank you for having me back. You're the minister now. Mm. How does it feel? It feels great. It feels like the chance to um, help rebuild trust in the scheme, a chance to help people. It's why I went into politics, for the purpose of helping people empower their own lives. So I just I, I feel very lucky, very privileged. You're almost three months into it, Bill. Mm-hmm. Is it what you expected? Mm, yes and no. Um, I've encountered more problems at the agency than I was expecting, I'll be honest. Um, I think I think that, and when I say that, I'm not talking about the thousands of uh, APS staff, but I am surprised at the slow pace of change. There's been an election, new government, new minister, uh, and I really want us to get moving on problems in the scheme and making it a better experience for more people. What are your priorities, Bill? Well, the first one, and it remains a constant priority, is to make sure that we're keeping people on the scheme and people with disability generally COVID safe. Uh, And listen, we're getting a fair bit of cooperation on that, so that's that's crucial because COVID's a very real threat and risk to people with reduced immunities. So I'm very conscious of our obligation to do everything we can in our power to help keep people safe. A couple of other my early priorities are to unblock hospitals, the exit block where people who are eligible for NDIS are stuck languishing in hospitals for months and months. And also I want to reduce the amount of disputation between participants in the agency triggering AAT actions. I want to reduce the, the legacy cases. On both these matters, I thought I could make more speedy progress and so that's really right at the front of my brain at the moment. Fantastic. Well, so I'm going to we're going to get to talk about all of those things mm-hmm. um, in a bit of depth. So let's start with the issue of uh, people with disabilities who are stuck in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. We we know that before the election, when you and I spoke, you said you needed to look under the proverbial bonnet. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what what did you find under the bonnet? Well, I've been visiting hospitals, talking to people with disability, talking to clinicians and rehab experts. I'm finding that there's good reasons and bad reasons why people are stuck in hospitals long when they're eligible for NDIS support. I get that there's, in some parts of Australia, insufficient housing options, and that's, well, that's I shouldn't call it a good reason, it's not. I can understand that. But what is a bad reason by any stretch of the imagination is 
slow decision-making processes within the agency. We've just, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. There's too much what I call linear decision-making where, you know, reports and reports to make sure that someone's eligible, then we take time for someone to go and meet them, and then everything seems to be one decision at a time, whereas... um, I know that for other schemes, hospitals are able to support people re-enter the community much more speedily, but it just all seems to go into slow motion um, when it comes to some of the people in hospitals and the agencies. So I've got to really prioritise that. It's interesting because I was looking at some data and there are over a thousand brand new SBA uh, vacancies that are sitting yeah, empty. Um, mm. So it's not like there's not the places for people to go, right? Yeah, I think maybe in parts of regional Australia or Tasmania, there's, um, there is a bona fide shortage. But as a general rule, what you said is right, George. And like it's, it's slow decision making. So we need to get the decision making fast tracked, is that what you're saying? This is the analogy I'd use. Imagine if you had to travel four or five travel five railway stations. Normally what you do is you get on the train at railway station A and by the time that train takes you through to railway station E, you know, the fifth one. But what I feel sometimes happening with the agency and decision making is imagine if you could only get the train from A to B, then you've got to hop off, and then you've got to wait for a new train to take you from B to C, then you've got to hop off. Then you've got to wait for the new train to take you from C to D, and then you've got to hop off. Then you've got to wait for a train to take you from D to E. It's not a seamless process. We're not doing things concurrently. And there's enough knowledge. The other thing I want to do is I think the agency can afford to give delegated discretion to skilled planners who then embed themselves in the hospital process so they get to know the rehab people and the community care people. I just, you know, we... Sometimes you're better off letting the frontline people have some frontline powers. Yes, I completely agree with that. One other thing on this issue is that I've seen um, reports about internal accommodation options that are Hmm. are being set up to move people out of hospital, and some of those look quite inappropriate. So. Rather than with oh, I support the idea of transitional accommodation, but not inappropriate transitional accommodation. There's a point, though, I would make. While we wait for the forever home for someone who's in hospital, where there's good alternatives, uh, that's actually safer than keeping someone in a hospital. So you're right. It's got to be that the transitional accommodation's got to be appropriate. But, you know, we do have a rental market in Australia. We can find alternative accommodation but just waiting for the perfect of a forever home can actually jeopardize the health and safety of someone a participant who's eligible to leave hospital i agree but i think that we need to um, look at these uh, alternative we interim- need to look at an sba investment class accommodation class for interim accommodation which is focused on quality interim care interim yeah as long as we don't forget about people in those, no, no, in those houses. The problem right now is that people are in hospitals and they are being treated as put in the too hard basket or the too slow basket. Yeah, you're absolutely right. 
Let's talk about the related issue, and that's young people in residential aged care. Yeah. Um, you can, uh, um, we know that previous government made some commitments around this. Are you committed to achieving the, the targets set by the previous government? Well, we wanted to keep them, but I don't think the previous government was keeping them. So I've been talking to my colleague Annika Wells, who's the aged care minister. Uh, I think basically... Uh, people don't want me always talk about the previous government, but they are a fact of life. They did exist. But they made up targets and then forgot about them. Everything was just getting beyond the next election. So I'm meeting with aged care officials and I'm not satisfied at the progress that we're making. How quickly we can remedy it, I don't know. But I think a bit like hospital discharge, we've just got to get smarter about it and treat it as a priority, and not just a general statement or a feel-good statement in a press release. I'm going to find people in the system who are accountable for actually helping people out of inappropriate accommodation to appropriate accommodation. Absolutely. Uh, uh, you're the minister now. Um, are you still committed to those commitments? So we've got that commitment that my... Um, 2022, I'm assuming that's the end of the year, there'll be no people with disabilities uh, who are under 65 going into aged care. Is that something that you're committed to? Absolutely. Nothing's changed. What I don't know is how much the previous government hasn't done. So we're trying to get to the bottom of that. But the goal is the right goal. The outcome is the right outcome. Uh, but I just, this previous government sort of left us with a lot of um, ticking time bombs, in my opinion. There's a lot of work to do. Yeah. I'm glad that you're committed to the, um, those commitments. Yeah. Before the election, um, we talked a lot about the AOT and mm. the money that was wasted on lawyers. Mm. Um, and I'm interested in... Um, what's happened since you've come in around that? Have you uh, put into place any ways of... Yeah, I've um, held several meetings with civil society and with the agency to say I want the legacy list reduced. It's been reduced by about 200 cases, but I'm not satisfied even in the last six or seven weeks that that's fast enough. The agency assured me that they're doing everything they can. I think... It needs new thinking. So I've asked the agency to look at some different options to just business as usual and the way they're handling it so far. That is still a work in progress, George. I have a very firm view that um, I've just got to get the agency moving in the same direction. I remember when we spoke, you talked about one of the solutions here is to get the planning right at the start. Right, yeah. That's, we're going to do a an appropriate, the 10-year review of the scheme, we'll bring it forward to this year. We'll have more to say about that in coming weeks. Um, but one way to stop the fire hose of cases spraying to the AAT is to make the initial planning decisions better. The next way is making sure that there's, if you do disagree, there's an internal uh, conciliation process in which you have confidence that you don't need a lawyer and you're not going to get shafted. Um, so there's three aspects of what I'm talking to the agency about. One, I want to 
books, the waiting list of cases. Two, I want to have uh, an alternative dispute resolution process, which is um, lawyer-free. It doesn't mean anyone loses their legal rights, but this is lawyer-free because most participants can't afford lawyers against the agency. It means, uh, so I don't want the agency having lawyers either. In this alternative dispute process, I've said to the agency, what I want to see is that the agency puts its reasons in writing. Because how can you argue with an agency decision if you don't know the reasons for it? But the third leg of reform, and this is the most important, is get the planning right to begin with. Absolutely. One really uh, simple thing that I've... I, I know the disability community has been asking for for a very long time, and that's to be able to see a draft of their plan after their planning conversation. Yeah. That's still not happening. Why is that, Bill? Because it's stupid. Of course it should happen. So you want that can happen? I think um, planners should meet with the people they're designing the plans for. Yes. And I think they should send a draft to the participant and, and the participant's support network just to make sure that each has heard the other. I think these, are very, these are very basic points. Uh, I'm confident yeah. we will get to that system. I, I hope we do. I really think um, it's... it's Otherwise, yes, I'm confident we'll get there. I can't tell you which day we will get there, but listen, there's a lot to fix up from the previous government, but there's no doubt in my mind that how can you make a plan for someone without meeting them or talking to them or at least Zooming them? Bill, I want to talk now about COVID. You did mention mm. that it's one of your priority areas. We know that a lot of um, people with disabilities and people with um, medical, underlying medical conditions um, are entering their third year of isolation while the rest of the, the, the country's gone back to business as usual. Mm. I'm really interested in how you see your government supporting people with disabilities and the workforce, because the workforce is key here. Um, what, what, what are you going to be doing to, to support us? Through I'm the meetings between the department, uh, the agency, and people with disability and their representatives about these questions. We've also done a sort of a mock exercise, we call it a red team, where we get a whole lot of experts in and we test them, we test the system with all the potential problems that could pop up. And what that work's showing is that we've got to make sure that PPE and rats are getting out to people, just got to keep supplying that uh, material to people. The other thing is we've got to have a good push in terms of boosters, getting people boosted, because the rates are slower than they should be. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that we are... Uh... We, we need to really look at masks um, and make sure that people can access uh, N95 masks and that, that uh, also that the workforce understands um, what what kind of protections are going to keep people safe. Well, there's no doubt that the disability workforce bore a lot of the brunt of the last two COVID outbreaks where too often workers in their own time and have to go and get vaccinated workers would have to stay home and, and not go to work so they didn't put their people they're working with at risk. Um, that's why it's good that Labor reintroduced the pandemic leave provision for the workforce so that people don't have a choice between isolating and starving. Yes, it's very important. 
I'm not, I think it's just workforce at the same time. So I, I, I just think we can't talk about workforce enough, I think, um, that the NDIS is only going to deliver the, the promise of, of, of good supports if we have a, a strong and diverse and reliable workforce. Yeah. I know that you're also passionate about workforce, Bill. What are your plans around the disability workforce? Next week, actually, in Canberra, I'm hosting a forum which is going to talk a lot about NDIS workforce. Uh, I'll have participants, DROs, disability uh, rights organisations, service providers, unions, um, the agency experts to talk about how we can best fill the gaps for the workforce needs of the future. And one thing I'm very keen to look at is how we provide... Um, career paths and vocational training for people with disability and carers to work more generally in the sector. Excellent. Looking forward to that, Bill. Mm-hmm. I'd like to turn to the price guide. We know that there were uh, indexation um, and that was to uh, meet the, the changes under the award. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of things that people are talking about that they're not happy about. The first one is that tends to requiring seven days notice um, for cancellations. And I, I'm really interested in how, you know, in the, in the regular world, the non-NDIS world, um, you, you know, 24 hours is, is sufficient. Why, why are we requiring disabled people to give seven days notice? Well, sometimes you're not going to be able to. I realise that, but... In the award, it's sensible to provide seven days' notice. So I get that in the real world, life intrudes, so you can't plan everything seven days in advance. But I think that where we can, we should try and also do best practice. Interesting. I, I, I do know that, for example, um, you know, therapists, OTs, you know, if you cancel with them, they can spend that time getting someone else in and um, to fill that, that spot, there, there's a waiting list. We also know that they can complete reports, but we're paying them $200 an hour to uh, not not do anything. Yeah, well, I understand your point. I'll take it on board. Thanks, Bill. The other issue that um, was in the price card related to level three high-intensity Category and this is applied to um, it was applied to people with high and complex needs. Now, in the new guide, um, that was removed, so there was less incentive for providers to take on uh, people with complex needs. What what are your uh, views on this? I think you make a good point. I can see that um, I don't want people overcharging when they don't need to overcharge. And I get worried sometimes that some service providers always charge the top dollar. Having said that, and you're not the first person in recent times to raise this issue, that by not having separate categories, um, you create economic incentive to look after some people and not others. So, again, I'm taking that on board. I think I can see what you're saying there. So I'm not sure that... I'm not sure that it's the answer's completely settled. I think that you've got a point with people's complex needs. 
tend to know how to get into that. Yeah. Um, one of my uh, favorite topics, uh, people with disabilities in leadership roles, mm. before the election you made a commitment around putting people with disabilities in these roles, which is fantastic um, and important. How's that going, Bill? And why haven't you called me? Have you lost my phone number? <laughs> You're hard to lose, George. Um, I th we'll be making a package of announcements around CEO, chair, board. Uh, as soon as the, some of the processes are finished around the CEO, but I'm hopeful that ideally uh, in September or definitely before the end of September, there'll be announcements about some leadership positions and people with disability will be strongly represented in new appointments. Fantastic. So, well. I, you know, so I am conscious of that. I, before I'm holding next week, nearly 50% of the participants are people with disability. So where I can directly influence things, I'm trying to practice what I preach. Right down to even staff in my office. Um, I encourage my colleagues to talk about how we can do more leadership development. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good, and, and I I think that, um, you know, the NDIS, which is, you know, for people to should be um, informed by our, our experiences. All right, that's, that's my worldview. Um, I know when I was leader of the Labor Party, I helped uh, lead the debate in the Labor Party in 2015 that half of our candidates for Parliament should be women, and now that is what we've achieved. Uh, I understand and I think one of the remaining frontiers is how we boost the leadership roles of people with disability. I'm not going to say every position will always be resolved to everyone's satisfaction, but over time I've got no doubt that where I can, I'm going to influence greater profile and role for people with disability to be in charge of decision-making, not just for people with disability, but for everyone. There's an example of this that was... Uh... Uh, brought to my attention yesterday, and that was the issue of uh, the Joint Standing Committee on the NDIS, and um, we understand that uh, Senator Jordan Stiljohn, who is a uh, disabled person and a, a very strong disability uh, yeah, person, was overlooked for um, a leadership role on that Committee. I don't think what he was. I don't think he was overlooked. Um, the government of the day normally provides the chairperson on these standing committees, and the opposition of the day normally provides the deputy. Jordan is in the Greens Party, of which there's only one person on that committee. So that's been the parliamentary convention. I'll go back to saying something I think I said earlier in answer to you. I'm not saying that every position each time will be resolved to everyone's satisfaction. But over time, I've got no doubt under this government, we're going to see a lot more people with disability in leadership positions. Um, and as for Jordan, I meet with him directly. He has, um, he, I take him very seriously. So we talk regularly. There is still a concern around the disability law commission. Um, uh, the current commission I have, uh, does not have a disability, and um, there are a lot of power around the recommendations. Um, I understand that his powers are, are 
they're quite um, high to a point where other commissioners um, don't necessarily get a say. Um, is this something that you're going to address? Uh, I'm not going to start criticising the Royal Commission, George. I, um, I haven't necessarily heard what you just put to me. Uh, I think the Royal Commission is important. I think it's doing a power of work. Um, I'd be surprised if other commission. and I don't really want to get into the specific of what you said, but as a general point, I'd say I'd be surprised if the other commissioners aren't making their views felt. Uh, I'm referring to the letters patent. What will judge the success or otherwise of the Royal Commission will be its recommendations. Uh, I think it's getting a lot better as it goes along about providing people with disability a direct voice. Um, so I'm, I'm prepared to wait to see what's happening and what they recommend. But I think it's um, proven to be more positive than negative, absolutely. So I'm a bit of a supporter of the Royal Commission and the work it's doing. I think it's very important and I'm, I'm thinking more around that issue of leadership roles and to settle people and have and have and have that was that. done by the previous government. Um, let's just watch this space and how I go with things that I can directly influence. And I'll, I, I think you'll find over time that we will start cementing a role for people with disability visibly in decision making in this country, which is what we need to do. Yeah, let's do that. So the final topic is the NDIS review that you mentioned um, mm. earlier. Can you give us a bit of a, a taste of what to expect there? This was a review which was initially originally scheduled for next year, the 10-year anniversary of the um, NDIS to be done by the Productivity Commission. Um, Labor took a policy to the last election to have a focus on a range of aspects of the NDIS and bring forward this review. So we'll be announcing more on that pretty soon, to be honest. Um, there'll be a steering committee. There'll be people with disability involved in the steering committee. There'll be a secretariat. It's not about cost-cutting and in terms of a razor gang or reinventing the Liberal independent assessments. It's about basically pulling together all the work that's been done about suggesting informing it. It's about co-design of people with disability. How do we learn the lessons of the last nine years and make the next 10 years of the NDIS better and brighter? Well, we already know a fair bit of what needs to be done, I think. Um, and I think this review will help pull together a lot of the threads. It's not a forever review. It's I want to see its uh, work and results come into fruition by the budget of next year. Uh, so that we can start making sure the NDIS is more responsive than it is. Uh, the Are NDIS you involved in the terms of reference? And... Yeah, yeah, that's happening. Yeah. Have... The terms of reference are, are taken from the bilateral agreement with the state, so they're already set in stone. And the other issues that we want to look at in the review, we put to the Australian people before the last election. But the actual review will be done a lot with people with disability. That'll... I can guarantee that. Bill, it's been a very uh, interesting discussion. What kind of words would you like to share with people listening across the country? We've got a lot to do, and I feel an obligation not to waste a second of a minute of an hour of a day. Uh, and I just want to start fixing up the, the pain. This scheme's about empowering people, not causing pain at the moment. I still think it's causing more pain than it should. So let's get that right. 
Then I think there's a lot of excitement and positivity um, in the community about your uh, role as our minister. You were the man who uh, effectively um, advocated for this at the mm -hmm. highest level. Mm -hmm. And we're very grateful for that. Then we look forward to seeing the good work that you're going to do as minister. It's a collective effort. It's a collective effort and people with disability be at the centre of how we do it, what we do, why we do it. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for joining us on the show and I'll see you very soon. Yeah, look forward to catching up soon, George. Thank you and thanks for what you do to help provide uh, reliable, honest, accountable information to people. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary brought to you by the Summer Foundation. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.